0: That's right, get 55% off at babbel.com slash spp. That's spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash spp. Rules and restrictions may apply. What's up, everyone? This is John. Today's episode of Smart People Podcast is brought to you by Igloo. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. It's a cloud platform that can help you do your best work. Share files, blog updates, coordinate calendars, and manage projects. It's easy to use and easy to configure, even for the most non-technical of users. Best of all, it's built using responsive design, which means that everything you can do at your desk, you can now do on the go on your phone. Whether you're a large enterprise stuck using SharePoint or a fast-growing business overwhelmed by apps, create an intranet that matches your brand's look and feel, simplifies how you work, and is accessible on your phone. Sign up now and try it for free at igloosoftware.com smartpeople Welcome to smartpeoplepodcast.com. Smart
1: Hello and welcome to Smart People Podcast, conversations that satisfy your curious mind. Your favorite host is back in action. No longer do you have to listen to John doing the intros. This is Chris and thank you all for joining us today for a really incredible episode that hopefully will change your perspective. But first, I just wanted to let you know the reason not only have I been absent the past couple of weeks, But this intro might sound a little different, is there have been two major life events of mine recently. First, my son was born on April 13th, probably a date I should remember, Uh, four weeks early, although him and my wife are happy and healthy. That was unexpected, and luckily I have John here to kind of take over because, man, I needed to read more baby books. I was not, not prepared for that at all. But I'm back on the podcast wagon and should be here for the foreseeable future. The second thing is I moved. So we closed on Friday on our house and then the baby came on, I think it was Monday. So things have been crazy. I am in my new studio. It's going to be bigger, better, and just awesome but currently it's a little sparse so i think there's a little echo that i'm going to be working on we have some materials to build it out and really going to make this a a much nicer setup and the sound should improve but i apologize in the meantime so i'm going to keep this short today we are interviewing alexandra horowitz alexandra's written a couple books but the one we're kind of covering today is called on looking 11 walks with expert eyes and i really want to talk to alexandra because in this book what she does is she goes on walks around the city of Manhattan, mostly, with 11 quote-unquote experts, things ranging from geologists, physicians, sound designers, sociologists. And she tries to perceive the environment through their eyes by by listening to them and seeing what they observe. And what I, it's kind of like what we do on the podcast. We are talking to people from various aspects of life, to, to get their sense of what's going on, to learn their knowledge, to see what excites them, why they do what they do, what's going on in their field. And really, it's all an exercise on expanding our horizons, our grasp of the world we inhabit. And so I thought this was kind of a microcosm of what we do on the podcast in this book. Alexandra teaches psychology, canine cognition, and creative nonfiction writing at Barnard College, Columbia University, She earned her Ph.D. in Cognitive Science at the University of California at San Diego and has studied the cognition of humans, rhinoceros, bonobos, and dogs. If you can't tell, she's a big fan of dogs, another reason why I loved her. And we do touch on that, but it's not a main focus of the episode. Thank you all for listening. Thanks for being a fan. Thanks to the emails, man. I've been getting some emails, some tweets. Please tweet at us. It's so much fun. At Pod. And, uh, and sign up for the newsletter at smartpeoplepodcast.com. We love you guys. Hope you enjoy this episode. This is Alexandra Horowitz, Smart People Podcast. Enjoy. <laughs> Alexandra, thank you so much for being on the show. I know that the topic we're going to discuss today basically, attention talk about the way we view the world is something that the listeners love. I mean, we've we've taken polls and the, the way the brain and our bodies interact with the world is a favorite out there. So thanks for being on the show. Really excited to talk to you. My pleasure. So apart from being a best selling author, you are a professor and a cognitive scientist. Where did this fascination, I guess, with the world of kind of our brain and attention and how we view things and all the things you teach. Where did that come from?
2: I don't know if I could find the initial point of interest, attention, and where we choose to bring our attention and perception, how we see the world, just has been, I realized at some point, the undercurrent of all of my interests, Um, starting when I was in graduate school and was interested in the minds of non-human animals, and how you could find out about their experiences. And then when I came to study dogs and got very interested in how they saw the world, and was at the same time still very interested in that human animal and using what I was learning about the dog to reflect back on myself, you know, what was what was my perception really like? What was I not seeing? Um, And attention just is the current that underlies all of that. Um, So I think, there wasn't one moment, but just in being in this field and thinking about how we view the world and how other animals view the world, it brought, that brought me back to looking at how I view the world
1: um, in an average day. I did read that you have a specialty in canine cognition. And as you mentioned, you know, understanding dogs. And the way you mentioned that the dog is an animal and then the human animal I think there's oftentimes we separate the fact that there's all these other animals and then there's us, when really there's not that much difference.
2: Right. Right. I mean, Darwin thought there is a continuum, essentially, between the human and non-human animals. And although it's not clean continuum on every front, you know, we haven't seen another animal who uses language like we do, like we are doing now. You know, there are no podcasts in the canine Mm. world. But nonetheless, you know, there is communication of some sort. And in some ways, animals extravagantly exceed our abilities, you know, in certain perceptual abilities or navigation. And um, so it that's always in my mind. And I view us as, you know, a, a kind of high-performing animal. But in some ways, we're not. And I think in, in attention, um, we've let ourselves go a little bit (laughs) we we've forgotten how to be aware of all the things which our brain and senses actually could be aware of
1: one thing I did want to ask as we get into this discussion of attention in your book which is on looking 11 walks with expert eyes I wanted to see first do you believe that the way different animals perceive the world and are attentive to what's going on is solely based on survival you know, as humans and dogs, does our brain tell us what to attend to due to how it might positively or negatively affect us?
2: I think at a deep level, yes, right? In other words, as a species, we like every species is adapted to survive in this environment. And so we have features, our brain, our senses, you know, our reflexes, which are the best that have been designed so far for us to survive in this environment. Um, So yeah, fundamentally it's all about survival. You know, on the local level, we can override that, you know, not every move we make and every thought we have is fundamentally about survival, but the equipment, yes, it evolved for us to survive, thrive, and perpetuate our genes. And so, I think it's interesting to remember that, even though we feel like we have total control of and are like the great initiators of everything we do.
1: And so with that in mind, do you feel like we're operating on old software? You mentioned there's two kinds of attention. There's vigilance and selective attention. And I find I spend too much of my life in that vigilance stage. In the past, at jobs, it's caused me anxiety and mm. I'm always... Thinking about the future, and I know a lot of people relate to this. I'm a coach. I talk to people. It's a it's a very common concern. Are we just no longer evolving or changing at a pace that allows us to keep up with all the stimulus?
2: That's an interesting way to look at it. There, I, you know, our software is good enough for continued survival, and part of it is that we, in some senses, the things we can create as a species, it, um, sort of exceed you know, have far exceeded our ability to really deal with them capably, you know. So our creative power is such that we find ourselves in situations where, yes, um, suddenly you feel like you have to be vigilant in 10 directions and it causes anxiety because our attention mechanism doesn't work well that way. So I don't know that we're broken exactly. In fact, I think that once we become aware of what's the root of that anxiety, you know, that, hmm, I am trying to do these couple of things at once, and I work best if I do one thing at once, then you can almost solve the problem. I don't want to sound simplistic, but um, awareness of of what we're bringing to the table sometimes helps in resolving the difficulty we have.
1: I was going to ask you, what is the importance of noticing, wow, this is kind of meta, noticing our attention, attending to our attention? (laughs) You know, what is the purpose then, if it's this mechanism that's been honed over hundreds of thousands, millions of years, why not just let it take us where it may? So I want you to kind of answer that. But in the same vein, do you think also by by realizing these things and realizing where our attention goes, it can actually just help us live a, a better life, whether that be happier, calmer, uh, more connected, etc.
2: Yeah, I think my answer is almost the same to both questions, actually. You know, I think the reason to bring... Attention to our attention is because um, our attention isn't working for many of us, right? We find that we're attentive to the wrong things. We've missed our days, you know. A day passes, and you kind of don't know what happened in the day. We're, we find that we're being attracted by shiny things, shiny objects, you know, whatever's on the phone, fo- on our phone, or on some other screen, and forget to check in with ourselves, um, and and really for me at least, and I would extrapolate that, you know, I don't have any special power here. Just rem, just seeing that I was doing that, reminding myself that I was doing that and figuring out how to step back and conscientiously, intentionally use my attention as opposed to just let it happen was an incredible solve for these things. You know, I, 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 I feel like my day is enriched by being able to wield my attention, attention intentionally, right? On purpose, as opposed to just um, uh, reflexively.
1: You know, one of the things as you talked about that, I, I can't help but think oftentimes late at night, I'll be on the couch with my dog, who is just the coolest animal. And he's, you know, yeah. he's, he's been around through a lot of stuff. And he's getting old. And sometimes I'll think about when he dies. And I'll just look at him. And I'll, I'll almost try so hard to be attentive, right? I'll try to look at him and be able to remember him when he's gone. And it seems a little morbid, but I'm sure you understand and other people understand why, right? You want to hold on to the things even though they're they're fleeting. But you also talk about a different type of attention. So there's a part in your book where you say paying attention seems simple. It's sit still, don't blink and attend. But in fact, you're arguing for a different larger form of attention for the purposes of enriching our lives
2: looking at something in a new way basically right right yeah and i don't think there's anything wrong with that way you're looking at your dog i think that that moment you know you're having a little bit of a meta moment yourself you're saying oh, look i am experiencing this i want to i want to stand outside of myself and and recognize that there is this moment happening here so that i can remember it. Mm -hmm. And I think that is actually how memory works. Mm -hmm. And so I think it's more likely you will remember those moments, you know, later on. And even talking about it now makes it more likely you're going to remember those moments later on. So that's great. So that's a useful kind of attention. I think some people find that difficult to do. And in general, don't know how to pay attention. It really isn't something we're instructed in, is it, you know, there's no schooling in attention you're just supposed to automatically know how to do it like uh, as though it were e- as easy as uh, opening your eyes to see right but in fact it's it's the way it's a way of seeing that we don't really have a well developed muscle for which is seeing in a particular way you know seeing with a certain focus and many of the psychologists who think about how we could teach people to pay attention really say listen just try to look at your scenario in a new way. Look at this object in front of you, look at your walk, look at yourself in a slightly new way. And the classic example of that is when you're searching for something, your keys, you know they're you left them on the desk and you just can't see them. Hmm. You know, obviously there are a lot of layers of things happening there. Perceptually you're looking, your eyes are open, you know they're definitely getting light reflected from everywhere. But your brain is not finding the little image, which is your keys. But you know they're there. If you've looked again and again, and you look in a new way, in other words, looking with kind of, it's just a little switch in the brain of expecting to see something differently, often the keys appear. And it's a strange ability. We actually have that ability. We just haven't been instructed to do it that much. But I think that that is a really easy way into a new form of attention, which then you can use whenever you want.
1: Do you know or is there a scientific explanation or description of how that works? How when we stop forcing attention sometimes, we actually achieve it?
2: I don't know if there's a clear-cut explanation for that. I would say that what's happening is that we are bringing a certain kind of search strategy to a scene, and it's just the wrong search strategy. You know, we think something's going to pop up, but it's not going to pop up. We think we're looking at the desk, but we're not really looking. We're not really searching. We just have our eyes open. And so it's getting out of that model, which is a little bit the spotlight of attention model, which we carry around with us all the time, and saying, like, okay, I, I have to blink my eyes and look with a different spotlight. But I don't know that anybody is studying what is happening at that moment. You know what is happening in the brain at that moment. Mostly, I think it's just a, it's just a slight act of will. Mm. In my in my book, one of the things I did to see things in a slightly different way was just ask people who knew about some part of a city block that I might not know about, like the geology or the trees or uh, how people are walking on the street. Just just tell me about that and and that's also focusing my attention on something which was always in front of me but which maybe I didn't have the expertise to see or just wasn't looking specifically at.
1: Yeah, and I found that so fascinating. Let's talk about your book a little bit. You go on walks, literal walks with different As you call them experts, some might say, well, you know, a toddler isn't an expert. But I really actually agree with you. It's an expert in the way it views the world. And so I guess first, what was most striking as you did these walks and what came about that you did not expect?
2: My project had really been to open my own eyes by taking a very familiar environment and then bringing people in who could perhaps show me things that i hadn't seen and these were boring environments you know ordinary blocks it wasn't like we went to a spectacular place where everybody is looking around and pointing and you know it was on the all the tour book guides and uh but i didn't know what i would see right you know that's it that's exactly it there was the possibility there that, that i w- had already seen anything interesting that there was <laughs> see, i thought i um but of course i was entirely wrong about that you know the I walked with just assortment of people a grab bag of people really who, for one or another reason, um interested me. But at the end I thought I could have walked with anybody. You know, literally grabbed anybody. And if I could get them to talk about what they see on an on an ordinary walk, on an ordinary city street. In other words, what are they drawn to see? Is it like the height of people's hemlines? Is it Something about how the trees have been pruned, it's where shadows are falling, it's the facing of buildings. Whatever the thing is that sort of captures their interest for a professional or, you know, personal reason, if they could show me that, I bet it was something that I didn't see. That's what I wound up feeling, which made me in awe of the different ways to see an ordinary scene.
1: Now to take a break for a minute for the sponsor that supports our show and helps make it free to you. That is Lynda.com, the online learning platform with over 3,000 on-demand video courses to help you strengthen your business, technology, and creative skills. For a free 10-day trial, visit Lynda.com/smartpeople. That's L-Y-N-D-A.com/smartpeople. Lynda.com is for problem solvers, for the curious, for people who want to make things happen. Maybe you want to master Excel, learn negotiation tactics, build a website, or boost your Photoshop skills. Go to lynda.com smartpeople smart people and feed that curious mind. Some of the courses I recommend are Excel 2013 Power Shortcuts. Growth Hacking Fundamentals is another cool one. Check that out. And finally, Bootstrapping Your Business because, hey, it's all the rage. What I love about the bootstrapping course is that they give you actionable advice. It's not just a topical overview, but this is really quality content and take it from me now that I have bootstrapped two businesses, it's worth checking out. With the lynda.com membership, you can watch and learn from top experts who are passionate about teaching, stream thousands of video courses on demand, and learn on your own schedule. Your Lynda.com membership will give you unlimited access to training on hundreds of topics, all for one flat rate. Whether you're looking to become an industry expert, you're passionate about a hobby, or you just want to learn something new, I want you to visit lynda.com smartpeople and sign up for your free ten day trial. That's lynda.com slash smartpeople. Now back to the episode. Yeah. And that was actually one of the most striking things that occurred to me when I was reading your book. It was, it's something I know and I've had to, I I didn't learn it probably till sometime after I was 20, but the fact that every person views every interaction scene, you know, whatever it might be differently and how differently people think, because I was always under this assumption that people thought like me. And I think some people might not want to admit it, but all of us come out of that at some point and it's very eye-opening this was a direct experiment on that because it's literally how do you see this or what do you see
2: that's wonderful i you're right it really was about kind of recognizing and remembering if we ever knew that holy cow everybody has an entirely different impression of what is happening right now and and an ability to see the layers of what is happening right now and and so i too although i didn't enter it i didn't enter into it as a kind of social experiment i entered into it more as a kind of personal journey to you know get a richness where i i felt like i had lost the ability to see a richness uh it really became that was the most powerful conclusion for me this sort of social opening of my eyes that reminding myself right every person here is having their own experience and we get very much in our heads in our own heads and are sure as you say that other people see this as we do and it is of course wrong and and so uh that was a delightful outcome i'm glad i'm glad that's you know that's something that um you as a reader can take away from it as well that really impresses me <laughs>
0: yeah
1: well i think it's important too it's a, it's a subject like i said when i realized it it was almost one of those light bulb moments it sounds stupid looking back at it right like of course people think differently but i don't know it's just bizarre
2: as though they do because it's easier to not have to worry about everybody else's different experience and impressions and motivations right if yeah. we just if they're not saying something out loud then we kind of um put them away a little bit And so it's a good reminder.
1: Uh, Along these lines, another thing that interests me in this aspect is I work in Washington, D.C., and I'm also, as Brene Brown puts it, not only wired for connection, but I feel like super wired for connection. Like if I'm by myself for a day, it drives me nuts. If I don't have these kind of conversations or calls, it actually affects my mood. So one of the things that really bothers me about city life is this false connection. I I even I work in a a combined space, you know, a, a shared office. And there's so many people, and I do it. I mean, I'm not saying other people do it. I go out of my way to almost ignore or walk around or put my head down or have my earphones in. And as you mentioned, I think you you summed it up perfectly. Objects and people on our route become possibilities for interaction rather than decoration or obstruction. That <laughs> that's what you did on your walk. Mm-hmm.
2: Yeah, and I. What does I, that I mean? Yeah, it's not like you have to do that all the time. I mean, if we always were, if you were going into that space and then and wanted to s- interact with everybody, and I mean, you would never get anything done, right? Mm-hmm. I just want us to realize that to remember that it's an option as opposed to having that blinded way of, of viewing people as well as our environment is already understood. And just in our way they they are options They They have interest, right?
0: Mm-hmm.
2: Incredible interest. So it, you know, myself, I can go between both modes
1: hmm. now,
2: which I don't think I could have before, you know, sometimes one has to get something done and, and sit down in a space, a social space and not deal with other people. But then to be able to look up once the work is done, or if the work is slowing, and, and try to uh, appeal to and and see who's around you. That's great. I don't think I could have done that so successfully before.
1: Yeah, well, and that's what you did, right? You went and talked to different people on the streets. What did you what did you uncover? What was the highlight of that?
2: Of the whole project?
1: Well, of, of that one specifically, you know, that walk where you looked with at people as, as examples of connection or ways to connect.
2: Kind of informants. You know? yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, uh, I had a great, I have a great respect for Myra, um, who I walked with and who is a, an artist. Um, and her, her approach to... People And the environment was so different than my own, which was a very city, typical urban approach, which is uh, you don't really interact with others. Um, And I, I think it reminded, I think the, the major result was that it reminded me that I can be seen by others. That was the other thing that, in other words, that I am just the way that I'm kind of ignoring others. I am pretending that I should also be ignored. But there, but if, if you open yourself up to somebody else, as opposed to closing off, there's a possibility there. If you just close off, there's no possibility. But if you're just open, you know, in some context, you won't want to be receptive to everybody who's walking by you on mm-hmm. the street. But the possibility of being open um, makes a difference. And it, she just re- she just reminded me of that. I'd, I'd forgotten.
1: This is something that I'd really like to hear from both your scientist hat and also, you know, the experiment you did with the book. I mean, what is it about strangers almost that makes us feel disconnected? Although if we were to meet them in a different circumstance, we would look at them completely different, I think.
2: Right. Yeah. Well, we are, I think, very contextually driven. Um, We want to be able to define our circumstance. We want to have our bearings all the time, right? Now I'm out on the street. Now I'm at this event. Now I'm at work. And it, it were categorizers, basically. And so people get categorized in that context. And maybe we don't know what to do. This is just, you know, my off the top. Maybe we don't know what to do with the people who are in the social shared space, the city sidewalks, mm-hmm. you know, walking down the streets together. They're not really categorized as anything. Who are they? They're just other people who live in the city. And so we're not sure how to act on that. Right. Whereas if we both walk through a door to a music school, then suddenly we have this thing in common. We understand how to who that something about who that person might be and therefore see an opportunity for interaction. So. But of course we could reimagine the context of being in the city together, which is these are people who also live in the city that you do and, and see this street that you do every day, and who apparently share some of your habits because you're on the city street at the same moment, you know? So they also are people who've left their house and walked down this sidewalk. They might have your same commute. And so and to to just imagine the context around that as opposed to assuming that it has no context at all might help us see them as you know. Um, people with whom we share something.
1: I just wonder at what point do we become physically more close, but mentally or emotionally more disconnected?
2: It's definitely protective um, Mm. in the city to not look at every person as an opportunity or, or a challenge or somebody who you have to interact with or might want to interact with you. I think, uh, and I think that's what people say about, you know, not, paying attention on their walks as well, um, or just taking a phone call or, or texting or something, is that they don't want to be exposed to, oh, there's too much going on, you know, and they want to restrict the things that are happening. And I understand that. That's, I think that's adaptive, right? Um, if we go back to what the, what our attention was made for, it was to notice the new thing in the environment because there's so many things in the environment that we can't be looking at them all at once, all the time. And so that's what we bring that same thing here to living.
1: Actually, I'm so glad you brought that up. It was another just two words I had written down, which was cognitive overload. And that's something I also think about often is the number of things happening. It's only getting worse. I mean, there's only more distractions. For example, I can no longer work with one computer screen has to be two <laughs> and what's funny is, when I say when I was 10 and didn't have computers, the, the idea of just having one that operated quickly, and then when you think back to when the internet came about, it was the 28k modem, or you know sure. the dial-up, and now it's fiber optic, two screens, wireless everything. If it doesn't load within two seconds, I'm going to get pissed off. it's growing so quickly that maybe this is our response to that cognitive overload. We can only focus on the things we deem important and everything else needs to get tuned out.
2: And I think the problem is we're not focusing that well anymore on the things we deem important, right? It, it's too much distraction at once. And if you if you work well with two screens, that that's great. But if that means that you're always flitting about and never can dive into something, then actually it's not so great. You know, you should, and I think, the reminder of this is what's happening, you know, just remembering what's happening is the first step to say, okay, how can I find the thing that works well for me? You know, some people Mm -hmm. are a little better at distributing attention or they want to always see the shiny new thing. For me, if if I'm going to get through a book, I have to have no other environmental stimulation. You know, I can't even have music on. And that's how my attention works. But other people are a little more multi, I think actually people who grow up in this environment might find it more ordinary, right, than I, who was pre-computer. So I do think that the creative technology is advancing faster than our ability to think about what's happening, right? And we have to stop and just say, okay, what do you have on now? What can you turn off, mm. which will be, which will make it more effective for you to do what you want to do.
1: You know what's so funny? I the other night, our power went out. Me and my wife are sitting on the couch watching TV, and the power goes out. First time in this house, so probably three years. And everything goes silent. And the first thought, I mean, we both look at each other, not in fear, but almost in this like, what do we do? Right? <laughs> so we rush. We light all these candles. We make sure the heat still works. And within 20 minutes, we're both reading. The fire's on. It's just amazing. It was so calming. And sure enough, right when we settle in, the power comes back on. <laughs> and, you know, we both looked at each other. It was like we knew what's going on. We said, Let's turn everything off. And so we turned everything back off. And it was this moment where the loudness of our world and my inability to attend to the things that I often want to, a good book, the snow, my relationship is drowned out. I'm just making this kind of assumption that this book that you wrote and the the discoveries you are making are almost a part of the solution to that problem.
2: Oh, that would be, that's a nice way of thinking about it. I i would love if it were, you know, I, I do think it's just like that, putting yourself in certain situations, maybe accidentally, if the power goes out, or intentionally, if you go and decide to take a walk, looking at one kind of thing, um, new thing. I think it's just putting yourself in those situations where we realize how equipped we are to handle our attention. And just that we've, forgot we've kind of neglected it you know we've just decided to let the world hit us um with whatever they throw at it what, rather than saying like you know what i want to decide how to look at this world there's a lot to see and i want to see the layers of it or i want to slow down and just see one thing at a time so if it's a reminder terrific
1: i looked at what you did with these 11 walks as almost a type of mindfulness meditation
2: hmm well I'll, people have mentioned mindfulness with regards to this book, although I wasn't, I guess I could say a practitioner or really thinking that that's what I was doing. No, I really thought I was just doing um, an exercise in perspective taking and also in seeing what else there is to see. Hmm. And of course, that does involve shutting off some of the things that are distracting us from seeing at all. And so it turns out to be, I, I, I agree, a kind of mindfulness exercise, but I didn't go into it with that intention. And in fact, maybe that's better because I think some people who are interested kind of in the overarching idea of mindfulness and paying attention might be turned off by just kind of the, the the kind of uh, field of it, you know, Mm -hmm. that, Oh, you have to, what are you going to, I'm not a meditator. I don't want to enter into this whole other way of being. I just want to be a little more attentive, you know? And so in that sense, this book, which kind of, orthogonally comes at mindfulness is a better way in yeah you don't have to do a practice right you just have to look in a slightly different way and see and and remember how easy that is to do
0: and now a word from our sponsor smart people podcast is supported by wealthfront the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way Wealthfront software manages your money using investment strategies that were previously only available to the wealthiest investors for just one quarter of the cost of using a traditional advisor. Wealthfront monitors your account 24-7, automatically rebalancing your portfolio, reinvesting dividends, and working to maximize your after-tax returns. Wealthfront is also overseen by a team of investment experts, the same experts who launched the Index Fund Revolution, and who have written some of the most important books in finance. In case you're still not convinced, you should know that Wealthfront manages over $2 billion in client assets and has saved millions of dollars on taxes for its clients. So with Wealthfront watching over your investments every day, what will you do with all your extra time? Visit Wealthfront.com to get your first $10,000 managed for free. Wealthfront Inc. is an SEC-registered investor advisor. Brokerage services are offered through Wealthfront Brokerage Corporation, member FINRA and SIPC. This is not a solicitation to buy or sell securities. Investing in securities involves risks, and there is the possibility of losing money. Past performance is no guarantee of future results. Please visit Wealthfront.com to read their full disclosure.
1: With your 11 walks that you went on, what do you want people to know about the way they experience the environment? And I guess even more importantly, how can we do that? For, for those listening going, okay, guys, I've heard you know you talk about the benefits or perceived benefits. I'll decide that for myself. But how do I start? What do I do?
2: Well, great. One thing is I don't think it's you have to feel like um, A, you have to see everything at once or B, that you have to do this all the time. Right. This is something. This is a muscle you can flex. This attentive muscle. But also, yeah, it's not. I'm not gonna chastise you if you're texting while you're walking now and then. So that's fine, right? So it's not a mandate, which I think also concerns people. Like, I don't wanna have to be attentive all the time. So that's fine. That's the first thing to realize. The second thing is, it's really just about looking at. I think. the the easy way in is looking at one thing at a time as you go for a walk. So, you know, my, when I, it really did come in some level from my looking at my dog's experience, looking scientifically at dog experience. And then thinking about my own dogs and thinking, what is their perception of the block as we walk out of the house and are going to take our walk and realizing it was probably a different block every time we walked out because it had to do with smell for them, not with what they saw. And then trying to follow their smell and see what would what is smelling, you know, what would I be hmm. experiencing if I were them. And so each time I left the house, I could then say, all right, I just want to look at one type of thing. It's not smell this time, but it's trees. It's uh, where is the sun hit? You know, where is the sun today? I'm just going to trace the sun, something like that. It's what is the facing of every building that we pass. I want to notice how many are brick, how many are limestone, how many are concrete, you know, and go just just looking at that. Doesn't sound like it's, you know, doesn't you don't have to even have any experience. It's great if you do have experience, but if you just look at one thing, then suddenly you're looking at things you haven't looked at before with a kind of attention. That's all there is to it. You could look at people's hats and say like I sort of want to collect Hat images today you know um, or glasses what are people wearing and then suddenly you find yourself looking at people in a way you don't usually look at them mm. that's enriching
1: when you were talking about the and I know that that was the the book that you wrote what was the title of it the one that um, bestseller had to do with dogs inside of a dog inside of a dog yeah and I haven't got to that one yet, but I'm super interested especially now when you mentioned the world being different. To them, because every smell is a new smell, and and so the same walk could be different. With your scientific background, dogs can see. So why is it that the smells are the most important thing, as opposed to I'd say for a human, for us, it's sight.
2: Sure, we are visual creatures, I would say, and that's because our eyes are extremely well designed and and powerful, and we also have a lot of our brain devoted to processing visual input. Um, for the dogs. But we have noses still, right? You know, we still can smell. For dogs, it's just that the priority is reversed. You know, they have extremely well-designed noses that have much more tissue, um, which is able to receive odorant molecules or smells, than our noses, and they have much more relative brain size devoted to receiving olfactory input as opposed to visual input. So, although we can smell, we don't go outside and smell first, and although they can see, seeing is for them second to smelling. Mm. So that's a fascinating way. I I think it's very hard for us to imagine being smelling creatures first. First of all, like, why would you want to be, you know, we're very, Mm. this is, again, the thing you bring up before. Like, I just assume everybody is like me. (laughs) And I think we assume that of other animals as well. Like, if they have eyes, they're just looking in the way we're looking all the time. It's just not true, you know. Some animals can see in ultraviolet light and we can't see up there, but they have eyes and that's what they're seeing with their eyes. Dogs can see perfectly well, although they're a little nearsighted um, and they don't see in all colors, but their noses are so much stronger that that's really their priority.
1: Is there any scientific reason why when I walk my dog, he'll like stop and yank as hard as he can? He weighs a hundred pounds, so he'll just pull okay. till he gets to that one smell.
2: Oh, Sure. There's a huge amount of information in that smell, you know that smell let's say it was on um, a you know a, a fire plug it's left by another dog. Um, that smell has information about who that dog was, their identity, maybe their sex, maybe their health, maybe whether they're ready to mate, maybe what they ate. it has information about how long ago they were there it's just something about that dog, hmm. and so it's an interest in other dogs. Um, that drives them there. Just the way you know we see somebody walking by, we might crane our neck to look at that person. We just want to get information about other members of our species, and that's what your dog is doing. I hope you let him go and smell that smell.
1: I do actually. After I read that, it's so good for their brains. <laughs> I, I, for a while, I was like, "This is ridiculous. Come on!" But now, you know, I go, "Okay, take your time."
2: Absolutely. I mean, I let my dog sometimes on our walks. Totally lead me, you know, yeah. stopping and letting them sniff as long as they want to sniff because that is their that, – that would be like if I were yanking them away all the time. That's like every time you open your eyes as you walk down the block, someone is slapping their hands over your eyes. Oh,
1: my gosh. You're like,
2: I just want to see.
1: I just want to see what's here. Oh, my gosh. I, I think in that one phrase, you just changed the way so many people go on walks. And I know a lot of people listen to this while walking their dogs. So, man, I think a lot just happened right well, there. good. <laughs> so I want to ask you a question. I've actually never asked anyone, even though we've had 100 and something plus writers on the show. And I don't know. I don't know how you're going to take it. But I know it will benefit so many people, so many creative people. And I think it deals with attention, what we choose to focus on. So in doing research for books, I I do a lot of stuff, you know, I'll read them or part of them. I'll look at reviews. I'll go on Amazon. And I was looking on Amazon, you know, you have like four and a half stars or something. It's a great book. And there was one review that was so ridiculously negative. And we get that as a podcast. People don't like it and they're free to put their thoughts out there. I understand that especially if they're well thought out. But this one was so ridiculous. I want to know, as a writer, do you give credence to those? How do they affect you? Do you have any recommendations for people who want to put things into the world but are affected by those?
2: Oh, that's an interesting question. I, I've thought a lot about how, what happens when writers get feedback like this, and especially with the regular availability of you know, writing online reviews. Uh, which could conceivably be seen by the author, certainly, there's just suddenly a huge number of voices coming at everyone who writes anything and or and produces, makes anything creative and puts it out for public consumption. It's overwhelming. I think, when I, especially when I wrote my first book and I got a lot of really lovely praise and also people who really didn't like what I was saying mm-hmm. <laughs> at the same time, I had this small epiphany, which was just you that kind of, you can never satisfy everybody, you know, and all that I can do is put out what I feel has integrity. And there's just a part of what I want to say and honestly put that out in good faith and not worry about, I mean, it's impossible to worry about catching everybody's ear and catching everybody's mind or heart. You know, I, so I can't, and I don't, when I read something that's very negative negative just personally, it's shocking to me too. Mm-hmm. It it affects me, but it doesn't make me change what I'm going to do at all. So they're not, it's not an, ex- it's not an iterative exercise where I'm going to read reviews and say, oh, this is how I should do it better. I, th- I think, well, that person really felt strongly about this. And I wish I didn't have somebody yelling at me that they hate me you know that's not it doesn't feel good just personally it's strange that people want to do that to me because I certainly wasn't yelling at anybody that you have to read this book right so so it doesn't seem reciprocal but but there is really nothing I'm going to do with that except for just feel slight hurt so the best response is I'm not going to read all my reviews because the good ones are great but you focus on the bad ones right and so why why do I need to do that
1: hmm Yeah. It's so interesting. I mean, even for the podcast, it's free, right? It's like, and there's hundreds of thousands of them. So if you don't like it, just don't listen to it is kind of the the mentality sometimes. But it says
2: a lot more about the person who is writing that review than it does about what they're writing about, you know, something about themselves. And I, and I do appreciate that, you know, uh, writers or, or anybody is, you know, is, um, You're writing to be heard at some level. And these are people who also want to be heard at Mm -hmm. some level. And so, okay, this is the context for doing it. But maybe they're, you know, not fully considering the kind of effect it might have on somebody else.
1: Yeah. And the other thing, because then I found myself, I listen to a lot of podcasts. And I obviously listen to the ones I enjoy. And so, but I found myself, say I listen to two or three of the same one, and I get annoyed with something. Whether it be the way they ask a question, the sound of their voice, the way they interrupt, whatever. It angers me. And now, I don't think I would ever go write a negative review, but I would possibly, although I've never done it, try to give constructive feedback. And I think that's also a big difference. I don't want to make it sound like, when we get an email saying, hey, don't like the way you do this, that I don't appreciate it. But there's just, I think sometimes this difference. And I was just wondering, because of the review I read on your book, I was like, what is this person thinking? And then I wanted to say, you know, Alexandra, how does that affect you? But yeah.
2: Well, I think usually people aren't writing. I mean, they'll email, I get a lot of emails. Some of those are feedback, but most, you know, or they have a further question or want to have a conversation about something. That's great. But reviews are usually not a kind of feedback, like a suggestion, because the thing is already done. You know, mm. the book is done. I'm not going to redo it with this feedback. It's gone through lots of levels of feedback from lots of readers and editors before it was ever published. Yeah. And that was what this is just what it is right now. Um, and so if you're saying you'd really hate it, that's not feedback for me. That's just your feeling like you've lost two hours of your life or something. Right. That, so that's where I, that's kind of where I stand on that. I think it's a really interesting question.
1: It's, I, I, yeah, maybe I'll start asking that of everyone because like I said, almost everyone, or probably everyone we talk to has created something and put something out for public consumption. So it might be interesting to get all the responses. I
0: don't know
2: I, I think it would. you know one of my you know brain pickings
0: yes. reasons,
2: website it was just so it's kind of so lovely and if sometimes you think about what she's doing. Which is so great and one of the things she's doing is um, she's not putting out negative uh, feedback you know she just collects things that she likes or stimulate her, and she's just making those available or telling people about them, putting her own spin on some of them, but sometimes just showing what she loves to collect
0: mm-hmm.
2: and whatever feedback she gets, I don't know, but she doesn't do any negative and i don't like that you know and this is so much better than that kind of thing and it's really amazing that she does that that's there's very there are very few forums which are entirely i wouldn't say uncritical because she has a very critical judgment but unnegative
1: mhm no and i actually they
2: applaud that like why i i think i wish that I could be a model for more of online discussion
1: i know i actually i want to have her on the show and i also want to ask her like hey i want to create what you've created. So how do I do that? (laughs) Because like, that's what I'm actually, we are aspiring to do in the near future, hopefully with the podcast, is similar to what she does. And uh, so I'm just fascinated by that. And brainpickings.org, everyone, it's great if you haven't checked out that website.
2: Yes, only good things to say. Absolutely.
1: Well, Alexandra, thank you so much for being on the show. And again, the book is On Looking, 11 Walks with Expert Eyes. It is incredible. It, it opens your eyes to a number of things, as we've discussed on the show. Where else can people find you? Are there other places that you write? Do you blog? Are you active on social media?
2: I have a Twitter presence as of now, uh, although a kind of slightly quiet presence, Dog <laughs> Umfeld, which, which is a which reference to the inside of the dog um, concept of the mind of the dog. And yeah, our, my lab my dog, Cognition Lab, has a Facebook page. And um, also, at, at Barnard, um, I often list, if I have events happening, my Barnard psychology website.
1: Well, I'm going to definitely link to those so that people can. I, I have a feeling that that Facebook page is something pretty interesting. So, to make sure people can find that. And we definitely can't spell your Twitter handle, so we'll link to that as well.
2: Okay, good. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, again, Alexandra, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it
2: and really enjoyable and surprising conversation so thanks
1: thank you so much have a great rest of your uh, young day <laughs> thanks <laughs> all right bye-bye bye-bye
0: welcome back everyone hope you enjoyed that conversation with alexandra Hurwitz. Please remember that you can pick up her book, On Looking, a Walker's Guide to the Art of Observation on Amazon or at your local bookstore. If you do purchase through Amazon, don't forget Smart People Podcast's Amazon link. Just head over to smartpeoplepodcast.com and click on the Amazon banner, or use the convenient link, smartpeoplepodcast.com/slash Amazon. And if you're a dog lover like Chris and I, You can also pick up Alexandra's book, Inside of a Dog, What Dogs See, Smell, and Know. You know that they're curious animals, they're funny, they're quirky, and uh, this book is absolutely fantastic, definitely worth checking out. If you enjoyed this episode or any other episode of Smart People Podcast, I ask that you head over to iTunes and Stitcher and leave a rating, review, comment, all that good stuff over there. And if you ever want to reach out to the show, just shoot us an email at smartpeoplepodcast at gmail.com or send us a message on Twitter at smartpeoplepod. Whenever you're listening to this, I hope you're having a great day. And I really do appreciate you making Smart People Podcast part of your day. That truly does mean a lot to Chris and I. So again, thank you. Stay tuned. We've got awesome interviews coming up and we will see you next week. Smart People Podcast is supported by Wealthfront, the automated investment service that makes it easy to invest your money the right way. It automatically rebalances your portfolio and reinvests your dividends, all commission-free. Wealthfront manages over $2 billion and has saved millions on taxes for its clients. Visit Wealthfront.com slash smart people to get your first $10,000 managed for free.